0: Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 I hope and trust that uh, you all have uh, somewhat recovered from your turkey comas from this past week Your uh, tryptovan sleep, uh, you've waken up from that pretty well uh, this morning uh, We're looking forward to our time in the Word. We've been going through a series uh, called Called Out where We've been taking a close look at you know, what it means to be the church and not just for what that means to be the church in our relationship with God and our relationship with the world, but also what it means to be called the church in our relationships to one another as well. And so looking at selected passages throughout Scripture, uh, this morning we're spending our, our second week here in Ephesians chapter 4, where we'll be picking up where, uh, where Keith had, had led us through last week. We'll be talking a little bit more so about the context as we go throughout uh, this passage before us, verses 17 through 32. But I invite you now, if you would, to, to please stand. The reading of God's Word. Uh, again, we'll be reading Ephesians chapter 4, and this morning will be in verses 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we give you thanks so much for the gift of your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, your heart. Uh, you have revealed to us, Lord, uh, righteousness and holiness. God, I pray that as we, uh, we consider the uh, things found in your word here this morning, that you would, uh, God, just uh, soften our hearts to, uh, to your spirit, uh, that we would uh, receive Uh, Lord, what you uh, desire for us to receive, that we might come away changed, and Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you might remove all distractions and uh, considerations upon our our minds and hearts, Lord, so that we might be uh, solely focused on you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there are a number of things that uh, we can obviously do, whether as individuals, or we can also do them in groups. And sometimes, some of these things, it can be better to do them in a group than maybe what might be to do that as an individual. Just this past week we celebrated Thanksgiving. There's Obviously you can eat an entire turkey by yourself if you're physically capable of doing that and eating all of that food and, uh, and, and celebrating Thanksgiving. But there really is something special, obviously, kind of inherent in Thanksgiving of being able to Celebrate it with others around you. Uh, there's something about watching a funny movie that can be funny if you're watching it by yourself, but if you're watching it with other people who also find it funny, somehow that experience is a lot more enjoyable, at least it certainly is for me. Uh, maybe it's even watching your uh, favorite college football team. Even if they lose 38-3, to 3, it still might be more enjoyable to watch that with others as opposed to watching it just simply by yourself. Our passage is actually something kind of like that, if you will. Uh, the passage that we, that we just read here in Ephesians 4, uh, something that might be uh, very familiar to many of you, but it's oftentimes read and understood from the standpoint of kind of myself. You know, individualism, I need to put off and put on. This is something pertaining to my own spiritual walk, my own Christian life. But the reality is that there is something very profound and beautiful that is taking place here where the focus is really not on the individual, but even as we'll discuss here in a if you remember the context, that this is all in relation to the church, to the unity and to the maturity of the church as a whole. So again, so with that understanding, it creates this sweet and profound picture of the body of Christ in unity and in maturity. In fact, what we're going to see here in particular is that because Christ has given us new life, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, let us not only pursue individual maturity, but as members one of another. You remember from uh, from last week, again, Keith uh, kind of brought us through Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. And two verses in particular really summarize what we were you know, taking a closer look at. Number one was in verse 13. If you look at there in your, in your Bible, it says that until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And down in verse 16, which says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Maturity and unity these are the the themes of this passage but it's not just empty noise where Paul is just throwing out some some hypotheticals of of maturity or you just be more mature be more unified as a church but What we see here in these verses, verses 17 through 32, is is Paul really putting teeth to that, or putting uh, skin, if you will, on the, the skeleton. He tells us what that maturity and what that unity is to look like, even for us as a church. This really underscores what James said that we are to not be hearers only, but doers of the word. There are things which we are to pursue concerning maturity and unity for the church. So the first thing we're going to notice here in this first section, verses 17 through 24, that, that first paragraph, is Paul talks about how we can apply Christ spiritually. It's spiritual applications. And secondly, we'll see how there are practical applications for that as well. As obviously a close connection between the two. The first thing Paul does is to describe to us what the old self Really starts this off with a, with a warning, with a, a contrast to the way that he is in a moment going to, to call us to live. To, it's a warning. Do not do this. In fact, this is how you are to do it later on. And you think of warnings as the whole Christmas season is, is coming up. And soon, there will be many mothers and fathers, I believe, who will be scouring through operation manuals as to how to figure out how maybe some toy works or how some new tool is supposed to work or some appliance, how it is supposed to function. But you'll notice when you're looking through those operation manuals, what is often one of the first things in those manuals? It's a warning of how not to use that tool, that toy, that appliance, whatever it might be. Warning you because it will not bring about the desired results if you put your hand in this certain location while you're trying to operate your new saw. You will not be very pleased with the results. Uh, do not try to operate these machines while on this drug. Do not wash this shirt on this washer or dryer setting. You will not be very pleased with the results. The way of the old man Paul here is Describing warning people. There is a way in which we are not to go, which will not promote unity. There is a way which we could go which does not promote maturity within the church, within the individual and within the church. It is the way of the old man. It is the way of the Gentiles, as he describes it. It is the way apart from Christ. It's the way which the Ephesians used to be. It's the way that we all were before Christ and apart from Christ. How does he describe this way? What What is that marks, this, this warning? He says that it's a way of, of futility of mind. The way concerning the, the old man is a way concerning the futility of mind. Not, not stupid, but having pointless endeavors, purposeless, you know, pursuing those things which will not last. This way of darkened understanding a way of ignorance, a wrong way of thinking. It's also a hardness of heart, as he describes this. He, there's actually, if you kind of trace these verses through, there's almost kind of a, a building up uh, that he's doing, uh, even a, an order, if you will, to it. There's a there's the hardness of heart. There is a, a darkness. There is a, a darkness of, of conscience. There is a, a deadness. There's a lack of life. There is the result then is a, a recklessness. It is a, a having nothing to restrain you from, from doing evil. God giving man over to pursue the desires of his heart. This is the way in which we all were before Christ. This is the way that Paul is warning the Ephesians here and is warning us. Look, there is a way if you are pursuing maturity, if you are pursuing unity... Look, this, is, this is the road that, that it leads down. There's a, here's a warning. There's a way of ignorance when you are not following the purposes and intentions of Christ. And this is the path that it will lead us on that ultimately results in, in recklessness. It ultimately results in God not restraining the way that he desires to restrain our evil hearts. You think about this, this way of the Gentiles. Think about this, this way of futility. You know, how How could that possibly cultivate unity and maturity within the church? Instead, it cultivates individualism. It cultivates selfishness, short-sightedness, and impatience. Unity and mature thinking is often cultivated according to the world's pattern by... Everyone following the loudest voice in a room. That's what unity is. Whatever the loudest voice is, we all have to adhere to that. Maturity is having outrage. Even having outrage over other people's outrage. That's somehow maturity. It means that you are the most sensitive to what's going on around you. If you imagine the way of the world being better than it really is, then the necessity of Christ and his cross is lessened, and the potential of unregenerate man is elevated. The Christian cannot pattern himself after the unsafe person because the Christian has experienced a miracle of being raised from the dead, warning against the old man, falling back into the patterns and the ways of the old man. Instead, we are commended to pursue the new man, the new self look there in verse 20, it says, "But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is imploring them to remember the teaching that they had received concerning Christ. In fact, all of chapters 1 through 3 it goes into great detail about who Christ is and what he has done. But actually, more than that, I believe that's even just a recap of what Paul had been teaching them for three years. In Acts chapter 20, we were told that Paul had spent three years with the Ephesian church. Can you imagine the teaching of hearing Paul on a week-by-week basis uh, for three years that Paul is saying, "Remember what you have heard over that time concerning Christ." It was a well-instructed church. They, they knew the doctrines. They knew the theology, but there was something at Paul's point that they needed to, to put on. It doesn't just end at knowing some things about God, a basis for the church's way of living. Is not the church itself? It's Christ. Again, Paul is imploring to them again: unity and maturity. He's not saying now consider you know what you are as a church; consider who you are. But he says, he says, consider what you know about Christ. Consider who Christ is to drive you toward maturity. Paul says just in this one letter that Christ's death is an act of love for the church. Christ has furnished the church with gifts. And grace, we saw just last week. Christ will present the church to himself in glorious perfection. He'll say in chapter 5. our reasons why the church should be mature and unified that, that we come up with, that aren't rooted in Christ, are oftentimes very, very sad and pathetic when you think about it. We say, why should the church be unified, and go on to maturity? Well, because it's embarrassing when she isn't. The church should be mature so that other churches don't look down on her. The church should be mature so that you can look forward to attending Sunday services, so that you can feel proud to tell your friends where you attend. These are reasons that Paul gives why we are to pursue maturity and unity as a church. So that we can, you know, whether it be to feel better about ourselves or maybe our place among other churches, whatever it may be. That's not the reason at all. The reason is because Christ. The reason is because of who Christ is. Because all believers together are one body in Christ. The dividedness of Christ, there is division within the church as expressing a division within the very body of Christ. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there is no division in Christ because Christ is one. His body is called to be one. And so he tells us to put something off. What does he say there? He says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Oh, he describes that this this putting off. There's something about it that it sounds so easy. It sounds so simple. Just just put it off. Those, those remnants of the old man, that, that pride which still lingers, the the lutch, the the lust which still rears his ugly head, the the greed which is still there. Just 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 put it off. It's like sliding, you know, your foot out of a slipper. Just just put it off just take off. It almost has that kind of a feel a little bit to it. But that's, we know that even experientially that that's, that's not what's happening. It's not as simple as a, it's just a taking off of a slipper. I remember years ago, this analogy might be a little grotesque, but I'm sorry, it's the one that, that fits. I remember years ago playing high school football and for anyone who has either spent time playing football or have have had kids that have have played football, there is something that is very challenging about taking off not just all the pads, but everything you have on underneath the pads after a long practice or after a game when you're hot and sweaty and the smell is just putrid. It is awful. And then trying to take that stuff off afterward, it is a chore. It is a challenge to be able to do that, to rip that stuff off. It is not like sliding off a slipper. It is battle, it it feels like, some days worse than others. I believe that's more the image of what Paul is describing, the putting off. Again, it is not something simple. It is a, a stripping off that we need the Spirit's power and enablement to be able to do. Not just a putting off, but a putting on. There are things, qualities, which we are to put on that oftentimes feels just as difficult to be able to do. When we want to leave that old, grimy clothes, we want to leave them back on. We want to kind of dwell and sit in that for a little bit. Paul says you have to strip them off. You have to put something on, something which Kent Hughes, he describes as the divine wardrobe we are to put on. There's something which is not marked by ignorance. But with the knowledge of Christ. It is not marked with sensuality and impurity, but with righteousness and holiness. And it's not easy. Our very power, and even our very desire to put it off, is only wrought by Christ through his Spirit, it is only through his power and enablement. Again, there may be lingering effects of the old self which are still clinging to you even this morning that as we're talking about this there are things that are popping up in your mind. Perhaps you don't though even know what what they are. Perhaps you're thinking, oh no, it's okay, I'm I'm doing all right. Your hand may be near or on the blade of the saw, and we are given a warning. Are you comfortable in the wardrobe of death? Have you been given new life in Christ, yet you wear the grave clothes of of a dead man? Let us hate the ways of the old man and run to put on the clothes which Christ has purchased for us by his own blood. A church that is filled with the old self is filled with division, disunity, selfish ambition, and carelessness. We have been called to strip ourselves of the old man, which cultivates an attitude, cultivates an atmosphere of unity, maturity, and an awareness of others. And that's where Paul then kind of gets down to the dirt. What does this mean? What is the old man and the new man? What does it look like? What really is it that we are to be stripping off and then putting on? That's what he says here in these last verses of verses 25 through 32 of applying Christ practically. He spells out for us what that really looks like. But first off, he reinforces again, just within this whole context, this is not just concerning a you and Jesus thing. This is concerning all of us as a body. Look there at verse 25. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one of another. The reason why we put off and put on, the reason why we pursue Christ, because we are members one of another. Many of these admonitions here that, that flow from here, they flow from this spiritual reality that we are members one of another. And Paul, he, he paints a beautiful picture of who the church is throughout this entire book. The church is the bride of Christ. Christ. It is described in chapter 5. It is one new man, he says in chapter 2. It is the the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ, the cornerstone, as Matt prayed earlier. And as 1 Corinthians as well says, that we are one body. There is this profound and even mysterious relationship that takes place within the church. This relationship which we have with one another. And we oftentimes, and rightfully so, we celebrate the fact that we have union with Christ. It's a a great reality, our union with Christ. We are united to him. That as Christ died, those who are in, in him by faith, we also died in Christ, dying to sin. That as Christ was buried, we are united to Christ. We too in our sins were buried with Christ that as Christ rose again on the third day, he is risen. We who are united to Christ, we too are risen in Christ and with Christ. We're united to him. But that is not where the union stops. It's a phrase which the reformers love to use to describe a, a wonderful reality called double union. Not only are we united to Christ, but because of Christ, In our union with him, we are then united to each other. There's a very real union which happens in our relationship with one another through Christ. This double union, united to Christ, united to one another. This is perhaps no better pictured and illustrated even for us than when we partake of the Lord's Supper. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're taking the bread and we are drinking from the cup. We can see that, that that union that we have with Christ, but as we do that together as the body of Christ, there's a beautiful union which is, which is pictured in a relationship which we have with one another. We do not separately take of, of the bread and the cup, but it's something which is done together as the church in our union with each other. What a beautiful spiritual reality. We are members one of another. So, Paul really is not calling for the church to develop unity, to create unity within the church. What is he doing? If we really are united to Christ, united to one another, what is he really calling for us to do? To preserve and to reflect the unity which we already have in Christ. It is ours. And he is calling on the Ephesian church, he's calling on us as well, when we think of what union to each other really means, it means that we are to reflect a spiritual reality that is already there within the body of Christ. He says there is one faith, one church, one baptism. and there is one church, so it is a spiritual reality. But then how does he call us to, again, live that out? Again, this is where he just, he, he hits home with, uh, imperative after imperative after imperative. This is what it looks like, guys. This is what spiritual maturity looks like within the body of Christ. Look there in verse 25. It's about this This Jesus living. Therefore, having put away falsehood, again, what we read just before, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And we talk about what it means to be as members one of another, that we affect each other. We cannot build up each other apart from truth. Calvin, you see here, this, he's describing this, this falsehood, this tendency which we can have to not speak truth to one another. Calvin called lying a monstrosity was his term when we sin, when we lie to one another. In fact, you may even remember from the book of Acts, the very first sin that was judged, that's really elevated to the surface within the church, that caused great disruption, it was what? It was lying. Lying of Ananias and Sapphira. As they lied to, uh, to Peter and the leaders of the church, and as they pointed out, they haven't simply lied to to the church, but they have lied to the Holy Spirit. They had lied to God. That There's something about distrust. There's something about lying within the body of Christ that causes such great disruption. It says there at the end of of that account in Acts 5, that great fear, after they were judged, for do you remember how sad severe that was, that they were stricken dead right there before the apostles. It says, as a result, there was great fear that came upon the whole church. This, as you would imagine, with someone dying right before the apostles because of sin, great fear came upon the whole church. and not only affected themselves, and they thought it was just themselves, Ananias and Sapphira, but the maturity and spiritual condition of the entire church was moved, was stirred because of their lies. So we are called to do what? Not just to abstain from lying. It never is the case when God tells us to uh, to abstain from something, but to he calls us to to move forward in some other direction. We are not simply told to to not lie, but instead to be bold in truth to one another. To hold one another accountable. That's the opposite of lying, isn't it? Encouraging others with the truth of the gospel. Being willing to confess and repent when you have wronged someone else. Not to try to hide it over with a lie. But being willing to repent. Willing to confess to each other. And he moves on. It's not just lying. says in verse 26. To To be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Remember with being angry that uh, Jesus talks about what anger really ultimately is in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that, that ultimately that's committing murder. And in fact, actually all of these, as we'll see, maybe even picked up on as we've read through here, all these things that Paul is describing for the church is actually... Uh, a reiteration of the second half of the Ten Commandments. You know, don't lie, don't bear false witness to your neighbor, you know, don't be angry, don't commit murder. We'll talk about stealing. We'll talk about, uh, you know, clamoring. We we'll talk about coveting. We'll talk about these things here in these in these verses. Paul really kind of reinforcing not just the teaching of Jesus, but uh, but the teaching of the Old Testament as well. But here he says, "Be angry and do not sin." You know, there's always that that caveat whenever we talk about anger. Of well, there's a justifiable anger. You know, that there's a time that where we can be angry, and there are things that that we ought to be angry over, and that is very much so true. But if I'm honest, I probably spend more time talking about justifiable anger than actually having real justifiable anger. If I'm if I'm being completely honest, if I spend way more time having non justifiable anger than anything. And so I, I believe it's it's a us to really not just try to kind of talk away. Well, yeah, but there's times to be angry, so it's, so it's okay. But if we're being honest, how much of our anger really is that kind of anger that, as Scripture says, is justified? That is, you know, Jesus cleansing the temple, that real blood-boiling anger over the name and holiness of God versus just our own preferences Versus just what we think ought to be right—it's the way that it ought to be. In fact, Paul here is quoting from Psalm 4:4, which is actually I'd encourage you, if you uh, do some Sunday afternoon reading, to read through the entire fourth Psalm. Um, it's actually a, a beautiful uh, depiction of a prayer, uh, actually, in in all of that. But even as as Paul or as as David kind of interweaves this this anger motif in, it is actually a, a neat thing. But I want to read to you this quote from Frederick Buchner. It talks about just the, just how not harmless, how tragic anger can really be to our souls oftentimes without us even realizing it. He says, of the seven deadly sins, if you remember that old teaching of greed, lust, gluttony, envy, pride, and sloth, but anger. He says, anger is possibly the most fun, as he describes it. He says, to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. And you want to give back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king chief drawback is what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Reality is we there's something about kind of relishing and something that that makes us angry. A comment that someone had made. An offense which someone had committed against us. And all we do is just stew over it. And all it does is just withers us away ultimately. We think we're actually gaining something. We're you know, sharpening our arguments that we're going to make when we finally see them. Uh, but all we're really doing is is here feasting upon ourselves. When we think about that taking place within the body of Christ, this anger, this, this outlash, think of it like, a, like an autoimmune disease, that within the body there is a, a member of the body attacking itself, not even knowing it, attacking itself. And the whole body then is harmed as a result of it. The body suffers when anger is present within the body of Christ. The mature church is called to not cultivate death and anger and hatred, but again, we look at the flip side of this. is called to promote life. Promotes reconciliation and health Of relationships, seeks to fan the flame of spiritual life that is burning within others. It's called to be patient, not to be angry. It says here as well let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here we're looking at at stealing, and we're reminded the first Adam that he was a thief, and was cast out of Eden. But the last Adam, Christ, was the one who turned to a thief and said, "Today you will be with me in paradise." That is the battle being waged between the old and the new man, between the first Adam and the second Adam, the flesh from Adam and the spirit from Christ. The thief wants to take what is not his and wants it. For himself. But the community of faith is constantly being described as a community of giving. Acts chapter 2, where they have indeed they gave and they shared all things. It is not the fortressing of your personal time. It is not the fortressing of your own finances which cultivate maturity and unity. But it is ministering with an open hand, the resources which Christ has blessed you with the time which he has blessed you with. That shows maturity and unity within the church. He says here, verse 29, "...let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all, buildern, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Again, you see all these different connections, not just to the individual putting off and, and, and putting on, but is all concerning your relationships to one another. There's a strong connection between, it's about the, the corrupting talk coming out of your mouths. There's a connection between what is, comes out of your mouth and what is dwelling within your very heart. Jesus said it so plainly, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You hear that old phrase, I remember the first time I heard it uh, when I was living in Wyoming. We were saying, oh, what's down in the bucket, or what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And that's a very true sentiment corrupting talk in fact in Romans chapter 3 it describes the, the old man, the person that Paul is warning us about it talks about the old man in Romans 3 as their throat is an open grave and if the throat is an open grave, where does that make the heart? And there's a corpse that's, that's dwelling within there and then out comes the stench of an open grave this corrupting talk This same word can be translated as rotten, putrid, filthy. And so often we justify our language. Well, it's not hurting anybody. We justify our language saying, well, it's just kind of the the air that, that I breathe. Sometimes we oftentimes just take our cues from what society says is okay as opposed to what Christ says is okay. Let the Holy Spirit convict there. The Holy Spirit lives within the Christian And when the heart is filled with bitterness and anger and corruption, the spirit, what does he do? He grieves. Grieves over it. He who lives in the heart. Resulting in corrupted, tearing down of others, lying, complaining, malicious speech. Proverbs 12 says the tongue of the wise brings healing. Healing. tells a story of of what happened to the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, a church that he says was suffering with extreme poverty, had every occasion to complain, had every occasion for corrupted speech, for bitterness, because of things that were going on within the area of Macedonia at that time. Yet he says there in 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 through 5 that they overwhelmingly gave to the Jerusalem church who was in need. They had every opportunity for complaint. Yet what they did is they considered the church at large and gave to the church that was in need, so that the church might be built up, made mature, be unified. As we look at some of these different different areas concerning clamor, slander, malice, corrupting talk, stealing lying. All of these different areas that describe what we need to be putting off instead of putting on righteousness and holiness. Again, I would just remind you that this is a battle that, that we all face individually, but we're also all facing it together as well. Something which we wrestle with together as a body to build one another up. And there are no Lone Ranger Christians that are here in the world. We oftentimes want that to be the case. So just Not only is just me and God, but I'll fight this fight myself. I'll take care of it. And that's never found in Scripture. It's that he calls, God has built the church and created the church so that it might be a place where we can grow together because that's how we were created to grow and to be edified and built up is to depend and rely on one another. And when the body is being made mature together, is being unified together. It is reflecting the unity which is already there in Christ. If you are weighed down by the task of putting off and putting on these things, that the Holy Spirit is convicting you with this. Let me just remind you, just before we close, of the reality that I can certainly say this. I know that where I have failed, where I have miserably failed, where I have been putting on those grave clothes, where Christ has called me to put on the, the, the divine wardrobe, and I have not done it. And I've left on those stinky, smelly clothes. Reality is, where I have failed, Christ has succeeded. Where I have sinned, Christ has obeyed. And he tells me, he has given me his righteousness before a holy God. He has given us Christ Jesus, the one to whom we are to look in all of this. Be reminded, be encouraged of the reality that through faith, we stand before God as righteous, not because of our own doing, certainly not, but because of Christ Jesus. So if you are feeling worn down by the reality of your own sin, I pray that you would be encouraged by the reality of Christ. He will not only present us blameless before the throne as individuals, but as his spotless bride, the church members one of another, he will present us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much For the reality of Christ Lord I pray that you would give us the strength And endurance to to persevere uh, Through your Holy Spirit And God I pray that uh, you would give us the strength To to put on Not just On Sunday but day after day Moment by moment Lord We need your spirit to give us the strength The endurance the, The awareness The sensitivity Lord To put on what you have clothed us in already In Christ